0: One of my favorite trauma theorists is a Christian psychologist named Dan Allender. He says, as a trauma theorist, the unaddressed trauma in an individual, a family, let alone a culture, will always come due. You don't escape what the body materializes in the middle of heartache by simply believing something or doing something or bonding yourself to somebody. Now for a season, a shot of scotch may relieve certain levels of discomfort or disease, but the disease will have its own, shall we say, interior capacity to bring death. The the disease will have its own interior capacity to bring death. We're in a series called The Mission of God, and this is really the story that we've been telling through the lens of Scripture. Uh, We've been using the language of sin and curse to basically put language to this disease that gets embedded in God's world, and in us, and then what God is doing about it, what He has done, and what He continues to do through His people. Um, For those of you who don't remember, um, September 11th is a pretty important day in our nation's history. Um, I was talking with a firefighter, though, a friend named John Hanks. He's now chief of one of the divisions in town. But he says it was September 11th, 2011 that really stands out to him because he was on duty that day and there was a major accident on I-40 just right outside of Memphis. He says he remembers it because it was September 11th, how could you forget? But a big tanker had turned over and because of the accident there was all kinds of like spillage that had happened. And so it was a hazmat day the whole time, but because the tanker had turned over it meant the traffic on I-40 was backed up. It was just this big roadblock. So the people who needed to get to the scene of the accident couldn't even get there. And then once they got there, they were all kind of bundled up. And it's, it's this picture, if you can picture it, like a tanker with spillage and an accident that I kind of want to start with today. So you're going to have to use your imagination. Um, and I'm going to try to tell the story of Scripture very quickly through the lens of an accident, okay? Okay. So this is, this is meant to help us understand and then help set up this part six of the cross. So I'm convinced that the story of God reveals the mission of God. In, in other words, if you wanna know the mission, you need to understand the, the full story. That the, the, the thing that God is doing in Jesus is not separated, it's not some tag on, it's the full story and so we're gonna look at, at the story of God. All right, picture an accident. Um, Somebody comes over the radio, there, there's been an accident. Something, something's happened. There was a driver in a very important vehicle, and the very important vehicle turned over, and there was a fallout because of it. It's, it's toxic. It's spilling out. And everything it touches eventually, and in some cases very quickly, turns to death. Can you picture that? In the story of God, this is the first part of the story, and it's called the curse of sin, where the people entrusted with this great, majestic role, they swerve off course, they crash, and there's a fallout that spills over into every part of creation. But the story goes on, help is on the way. Picture like a rescue vehicle that's commissioned to go to the scene to clean up the toxin, to, to bring the cure. Help is on the way. The Lord in the story of God is going to do something about this. And the, the thing that He does is He sends the family of Abraham. Provided they can survive in a world that now is filled with toxins, provided they can survive that, they have the task to bring the cure to all the peoples of the earth. This is the family of Abraham in the story of God, where the cure is the blessing. That's, that's the language that Genesis 12 uses, the blessing that will reverse the curse. The blessing is the cure to the curse. Abraham's family is going to bring it. Part three in the story, we saw that the cure has protocols, that if the rescue vehicle is going to get the cure to the ends of the earth, they've got to take care of a few things. One, they have to stay away from the toxin. They just have to be separate, that you can't be near it. But secondly, there's some safety protocols that have to go in place. You can't just be haphazard with the the thing that is going to cure the world of this toxin. This in the story of God is called the law. It's the law. And so Israel is given instructions, this family of Abraham is given instructions for how to be separate from the nations, how to be separate from the sin of the world. And they're given very clear instructions on how to live with a very holy God. God in all his power is coming to live with his people. That's this, his presence is the cure. The blessing of God's glory is the cure. And so you can't deal with it haphazardly. All right, part four of the story is the, the devastating announcement that the family is sick. Now, we saw hints they were coughing all along the way in the rescue vehicle. But somehow, along the way, in the rescue vehicle, they totally broke protocol. They started stopping and, and bringing people in to the vehicle that were contaminated, and they started just breaking protocol with how to handle the cure. And so they, they started treating it like it was common, like it was nothing. Are you still tracking with me on on this metaphor? And and, in the story of God, this is what the prophets basically come and say. Like the coughing sickness has come to full fruition and you yourself are in total need of a cure. And they start saying things like this. You need to have surgery. Literally, this is like the message of Deuteronomy 30. You need to have, it's a weird metaphor, but a circumcised heart. What he's saying is you need to have like a spiritual heart surgery because you are so sick. You're as much part of the problem. Or Jeremiah, he says you need to have heart surgery, more like a heart transplant. He says the Lord is going to put his heart in you. Ezekiel, he says it like this. He's going to take your heart of stone and he's going to transplant his heart of flesh. What is the heart of flesh? He says he's going to take your spirit out and he's going to put his spirit in. You see, the the kind of metaphor of transplant, of surgery, of cure, of medicine, of an injection of the blessing. But the prophets say that if if you are not able to keep separate from the toxin, and if you're not able to abide with this cure, it's going to be over for you. This is part five. This is the roadblock. This is where the tanker has spilled, and there's this big pileup, and then the ambulance that was supposed to get there isn't able to, because they themselves have turned over. Where is where's the hope? In the story of God, this is the story of exile, and this is how the Old Testament ends, in death and exile, where the cure, the presence of God is actually removed. He's, he's left his people, where instead of being separate from the nations, he scatters them out into the nations, so where's the hope coming from? Where's the cure for the curse? Where is God's blessing? And this is what we started looking at last week in the story, or two weeks ago in the story of Jesus. Jesus enters into this story in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's like This is the beginning of the gospel. This is the gospel story that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, who is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of this story. And we saw how last week he demonstrates and he proclaims that the kingdom of God is going to bring full reverse to the curse. But today we get to talk about the cross. The cross is the ultimate act of how Jesus brings victory into this story. How Jesus, out of the rescue vehicle that's overturned with toxins spilling everywhere, he takes on in himself the fullness of the curse so that the cure can go free. Here's the thesis for today. In Christ Jesus, The blessing of God's Spirit comes to all nations by faith. In Christ Jesus, in King Jesus, the blessing of God's Spirit comes to all nations by faith. Okay, are you still with me after the metaphor? That, instead of a a review, that's the story you get today. And our text is Galatians chapter 3. If you have the Coffee House Bible, Galatians chapter 3 is on page 1002, 1002. Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be, verses 1 through 14. So let's just dive into the text, and then I'll kind of set the stage for what's going on in this letter. Paul writes this. He's an apostle that is really influential in this region. They all know him. And he's, he's writing this letter. He's pretty upset. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So who's cast a spell on you? What happened since last time I was with you? So what's, what's going on in this situation? Paul's writing a letter to people who he helped form in the faith. He told them about Jesus, and the gospel didn't just go to God's people, the family of Abraham. God's God's gospel went to the Gentiles also. But then after Paul was there, it says that messengers came from Jerusalem, like Pharisee people. They came from Jerusalem, and they said, those Gentiles can't be in the family of Abraham. Those Gentiles can't be even at the table with you. And Paul's really upset because even Peter and his friend Barnabas went along with the charade, with the hypocrisy of saying, those people don't belong at the Lord's table together. Those people don't belong in God's people. And so he says, what has happened here? That you've you started saying that they have to become circumcised Israelites to be a part of the family. This is not where I left things. So he says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed it's crucified. A lot of people think that Paul, he's not only articulate in his descriptions of the crucifixion of Jesus, but part of what he's doing is he's in his own suffering, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus. That's his language in another letter. He's showing Jesus through his life to be crucified. He says, I would like to learn just one thing, but notice this, just one thing, verse two, but then look how many questions he asks. He ends up asking six questions. I just wanna know one thing, here's six questions. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing, pistis, faith, of what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? He says, this is not where I left things. How did you get here? I just wanna know one thing. Did you get the spirit by faith or by the works of the law, by becoming a part of the Israelites? He he says it one more time, verse 5. So I ask again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by faith, by believing what you heard? Now, this is the tension for the text. He's he's setting it up in these first five verses. Is it faith? Or is it works of the law? Now a lot of interpreters for a long time have said, is it it works or is it faith? But notice he doesn't say, is it works or is it faith? He says, is it works of the law or is it faith? Those are different things. And so it's introduced this big debate as if you can be saved without any effort. (laughs) As if you can be saved and it doesn't require any works after your salvation. Paul says in other places that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's works here, but not works of the law. And so in the Protestant Reformation, people began arguing about is it works or is it faith? That is not what Paul has in mind here. Here's one commentary. Um, He says, this is not the, the contrast between outward actions, works in that sense, and an inner spiritual disposition. It's not decision versus devotion. That's an unbiblical antithesis, and he calls this a radical distortion. Instead, what he says is that these works of the law are not the way to the Holy Spirit of God. If you want the Spirit, the path is not into the wrecked rescue vehicle. Does that make sense, using the metaphor? You you can't go to the scene of the crash and expect to find the cure anymore. It's broken. It's spilled out. It's wasted. (laughs) It's not found there. There's only death and exile in that that story. And so where is it going to come from instead? He says it comes from faith. Pistis. Verse 6. So also Abraham believed God. The, The basis of God's covenant with Abraham and his family was originally faith. Long before the law ever was introduced into the story, there was faith. The reason Abraham was called was because of his faith in in the working of God, in in the word of God, in the promises of God. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, God formed a covenant, a promise with this man because he trusted him. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15. He says, understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. The true children of Abraham, in other words, are not people ethnically born into the lineage of Israel. The true children of Abraham are people marked by the faith of the father of faith, Abraham. He goes on, verse 8, scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. How would he justify the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jewish people? By faith, verse 8. And so he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. What is the gospel? Paul says it here, that all nations will be blessed through you. In the story that I started with, the, the gospel is basically the cure for all peoples. How is it coming? It's coming through the family of Abraham. So he says, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, he goes on. So all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The metaphor that I got came from N.T. Wright. He has this little throwaway line in one of his books called Paul and the Faithfulness of God, I think. He says, it's as though the delivery van commissioned to take an urgent message to a town far away had become stuck in a snowdrift through the driver's own culpable negligence. Do you, do you see, it's the, the rescue vehicle's been crashed. The point is not just that the van is stuck and the driver isolated and helpless. The problem is that the message is not getting through. So there's this issue. How are all the nations going to receive the blessing that was promised to them? How are all the nations living in the curse of sin going to experience the blessing? Well, the family is entrusted, but then the family themselves become sick and then they crash. But the story here is that everyone is under a curse. But then verse 11 says, but clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Remember, it's not about being part of the family of Israel. It's about being faithful to the promises of God. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things shall live by them. One commentary said, this is the most difficult verse in all of Galatians to understand. And so I was like, I'm just, how about we just move then? Let's just go to the next verse. Because this is really the focal point of where (laughs) we spend our time. You just, you don't want to hear that. And I don't have time for that uh, this morning. So in a message on the cross, we need to get to the cross. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us. Do you hear this language of redemption? About the only thing that we redeem today are coupons. But redemption is just the language of buying back somebody. It's actually a slave market metaphor. And the slave market, N.T. Wright says, that the Jews would have remembered It's the slave market of Egypt. And so when you start talking about redemption, you're talking about the God who, he, he breaks down the, the false gods, and he rescues and sets free, he brings liberation. You want to talk about redemption, you're talking about Passover. And so it's no surprise that the way that Christ has us remember his death is of a modified Passover feast of the victory of God over the powers of evil and a rescue of a helpless people under its weight and bondage. Christ redeemed us. But how did Christ reform the Egypt story around himself? In Galatians chapter 1, it says that Christ, he gave himself for us. He he gave himself in 1 Corinthians 15. It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In the language of Isaiah 53, it says that all of our burdens, all of our weights were put on Him. That the way that Christ redeemed us, in in Peter's language, he says, He's become our ransom. How? He says, not by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of of Jesus, the Lamb. We have been purchased, liberated, freed out of slavery by the death and the blood of of Jesus of Nazareth. Christ redeemed us, and that's how he did it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, this is a really stupid illustration, but I can't get it out of my head, so I'm just going to share it. This probably didn't come from the Lord. Just, I'm just throwing that out there. Have you ever seen Jim Carrey's The Mask? Okay. Thank you, two people who 30 years ago were really dumb. All right. There's a bad guy in, in the mask, and he has this big bomb, and he's going to kill everyone with a bomb. And the way that the mask saves the day, do you remember it? He ends up swallowing it, and because of who he is with the mask on, it doesn't kill him, but it saves everybody. He swallows the bomb, and it explodes inside him, and then every, everything's fine. He becomes, isn't that dumb? It doesn't do justice to what I'm trying to describe, so I... Uh, Lord, I apologize. It says he becomes the curse. So in in the metaphor, you know, the toxic spillage, the the overflow, the fallout of the radiation, all the metaphors that we've been using, it's as if that story with its train wreck ending, with, with the rescue vehicle turned over and everything spilled out, it's as if he comes out of the vehicle and is asking to receive all of the toxin in himself that the only way that the traffic jam can go is if all the traffic is put on him in some way. It's if all of the fallout, all of the sin is put on him. So it's not just enough to say that Christ died for my sin. That is too small a thing. Christ is victorious over all sin. He, He has dealt with our sins, like lowercase s, the things you and I have done. But he has also dealt with sin, capital S. And he has dealt the devastating blow... It allows God's mission to get back on track by becoming the curse for us. How did it become the curse? It says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Or cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And it's actually a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says that a man crucified like this, that is somebody cursed from God, far from God. And Jesus himself takes on that curse in himself. yes for all the people in the family of Israel in the rescue vehicle. But he does it, look at this, verse 14. Why did he do this? Do you see the so that, in order that? He redeemed us in order that. This is why he redeemed us, that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that Christ Took on the cross so that we could go to heaven when we die. He's he's not talking about salvation here, he's talking about mission here. This is a mission text. He redeemed us in order that the blessing might break through to who? To the Gentiles through Jesus Christ by faith. What is the blessing? Do you see it? The blessing is the Spirit this isn't a surprise. This is already what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, like the dry, thirsty ground, he says, I'm going to bring some water, and I'm going to water the dry, thirsty ground. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit as a blessing on your children. The the spirit of God becomes this taste of fresh water after you've been walking in the desert. It's there's a lot of metaphors for it but it's, it's like it's the sign of the inheritance it's the first thing you get um, maybe you've had like a grandparent or a relative die and you kind of go through some stuff in the house and you start divvying it up and it's like i get my grandmother's ring now the court hasn't fully worked through uh, all the other stuff just yet but i get this sign as a token of the greater inheritance that's still coming there, That's that's a metaphor Paul uses all the time in the New Testament about what the Spirit is. The Spirit is the sign, it's a foretaste of the thing that's still to come, of the great glorious new creation. You get to taste in advance the blessing. How do you taste it? You taste and see the Lord's good through the Holy Spirit. That's why he's saying, how did you get the Spirit? Did you get it by becoming an Israelite? No, don't go that way. That way's a dead end. It leads to a roadblock and devastation. He says, but you get the spirit by faith in Christ the Messiah who was crucified for us because he redeemed us by enduring our sin so that we could experience his blessing. We can receive the promise of the spirit. Just look at some of these beautiful ways that the New Testament describes the spirit. It says the fruit of the spirit, this is what happens to these people who are transformed. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. He says, we become spirit people, fruit of the Spirit people, empowered for mission. All right, let me me draw some threads together. What he's saying is that the Spirit of God, uh, it's not peripheral. It is the experience and the sign that you are part of the family of Abraham. And is lived out, not just in, in the amazing works of God, but primarily it's lived out in love. He says, you can fulfill the law in a word, love your neighbor as yourself. But i want to draw these threads together to just reiterate this thesis. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of God's spirit comes to all nations by faith. How? These are the four big categories we've been using in this series. This is what the cross of Christ does for the problem and the curse of sin. Do you remember we talked about how God's design is warped, and instead of being spirit-led, they become serpent-led? Jesus Christ comes into the spiritual realms, and he, he deals the devastating blow that, that kills the powers, that disarms the powers. Take a look at this, Hebrews 2. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that By his death, he might break the power of him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery. How are we liberated from the powers of the gods of this world? It says, by the death of Jesus, he has rescued us from the evil spiritual powers. He has rescued us from the spiritual powers that are still, have our city locked in place. Jesus Christ is bringing victory to those powers, He is dethroning the power of the devil, and he's doing it through this people. Okay, so he says, surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that's us. Part two. (laughs) He, He deals with the spiritual powers of evil, and then he deals with this very personal brokenness that we experience. The distorted identity, in the death of Jesus, he brings the renewed identity. Here's how Paul interprets the death of Jesus. He says, when you are dead in your sins the guilt and the shame and and the death of our sins. He says, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, he dealt with the powers and then he dealt with the accusation that they were lobbying at you. The, the inner voice of accusation has been silenced. The source of shame and guilt, the condemnation. Paul says there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no accusation for these people. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is only part two. Part three. He takes the broken family of Abraham that turns inward with sibling rivalry and murder, nation against nation, and he introduces the beloved family. Look how Paul interprets the cross in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for he himself is our peace, and he has made two, the people of God, Israel, and the people of the world, the Gentiles. He's made the two one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is how God is making a multi-ethnic family. God, in the cross of Jesus, breaks the things that separated peoples before. And in its place, he puts a cross that can reconcile people back to one another so that we can mourn as white and black and Latino today. My friends, Nico and Inti just stepped out, but I was so glad to see them today. Um, my, they're new students at the University of Memphis from Ecuador, and we connected through some of our, our friends. Many of you know the family that we've served many times. But the reason there can be a multi-ethnic family of God of all tribes and tongues and nations and peoples is because of the cross of Jesus. All right, that's part three. You see what, what Jesus is doing He's reconciling our brokenness to God, our brokenness to self, our brokenness to others, and he's reconciling our brokenness to the world. That's the fourth part. He takes the holistic sin that's spilled over into everything, the curse of death, the curse on creation itself, the curse in the systems of our cities and our governments. He takes all of that and he introduces this holistic ministry. Look once more at how the New Testament interprets the death of Jesus. This is. The revelation scene where they encounter the, the Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb, who is worthy to open the scroll. And it says they sang a new song. And they said, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. How incredible that we are the kings and queens of creation. More so, that we will be the kings and queens of new creation. You will reign once more, just as we were designed to be. Creation itself will be restored. Behold, I am making all things new, he says. I'm I'm making, descending out of heaven, he says, there's a, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The, the, the new city is coming down, and the new city will not be like this city. The new city will not be like Babylon. The new city will be filled up with the glory of the Lamb of God who sits in its midst, and the new city will be filled with these redeemed people who trust in the power of the cross to reconcile us back to God. This does a couple of things. First, this shows us that Our mission has to be cross-centered. The mission is cross-centered. It's the only way the mission actually moves forward. It's the only way the mission gets out of the rescue vehicle that's overturned. It's the only way the mission goes to the ends of the earth. It's through the cross of Jesus. This is the only medicine that gets the Spirit of God back. Paul says this in his letters to the Corinthians. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, foolishness. But he says, when I was with you, nothing while I was with you, I knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross is the center of our mission. It's the center of our announcement. But It's not just the center of our announcement. It's the center of our mission. Christopher Wright, in his book on the mission of God, he says, Why is the cross just as important across the whole field of mission? He says, not just what we say, it's what we do. He says, because in all forms of Christian mission, in the name of Christ, we are confronting the powers of evil and the kingdom of Satan. With all their dismal effects on human life and the wider creation, there is no other power, no other resource, no other name through which we can offer the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world than Jesus Christ crucified and risen. There's a cross-centered mission, but there's also a cross-shaped mission last point. The cross gives shape to the way that we do the mission. It is not only the power of the mission, but it is the paradigm of the mission. It's the model. So Paul can say, you should have the same mind that Christ Jesus had, who, though he was with God, went all the way to the cross. The downward descent of a life of suffering and service. He puts it in in the text that I have quoted up here. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we await our adoption. The, the, The mission of the church is not triumphalistic. The mission of the church is not moved through political victories. The mission of the church is carried forward by a groaning, lamenting people who understand, as Jermaine said, Brian and Candy said, and Natalie said, that this isn't the end of the story. Our groaning bears witness to the cross of Jesus. Our groaning bears witness to the coming victory and the return of Jesus we groan not as people who don't have hope. We groan, he says, in hope for the redemption of our bodies, for the redemption of creation. He says, not only we, but all creation groans in anticipation of what God is going to do when Jesus returns. This week, this last couple of weeks has been really difficult. It's been disorienting. It's left me on edge. And then what I've found is that it's basically what everyone's thinking about underneath the surface, but not talking about out, <laughs> out loud. And so just about every conversation, I can say, like, how are you doing? And somebody will say, I'm, I'm good. And I say, how are you doing with the last couple of weeks? And then, it, then the, you know, the, you feel it. The emotions come. And what I'm trying to say is that that groaning is a healthy mark of God's people. It is not something you have to hide from. It's not something you have to be um, bashful about. It's not something that has to be rare or only done on occasion. We, we are fully in, in Christ by the Spirit. This is something that we are called into. I was. I was thinking this morning of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me just read this and then, and then I'll kind of close with a reflection on Jesus. Um, In 2 Corinthians, Paul, he's despised. He's humiliated. Nobody's really on board with what he's doing there. He feels like a loner. He feels like he, he's not being heard. But he says, what, what we preach is Jesus Christ our Lord, not ourselves. And ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. He goes on. He says, we have this treasure, this, this gospel, this mission, this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I think this frees us for vulnerability. This week I've been asking, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? It's the message of Revelation chapter 6. After we're introduced to the Lamb, the martyrs of heaven, the ones who have died before, how long until you avenge us? He tells them to rest a little longer, but what we see is that the hope of God's people is not rest. The hope of God's people is justice. How long? But we get this picture. We get this picture of one who totally understands that suffering. He is the victorious lion of Judah, the root of Jesse. But he introduces himself as the slain lamb, the slaughtered lamb. But then by the time we see him again in chapter seven, he does this amazing thing. the Lamb, he says, is at the center of the throne. And the Lamb, in some way, will also be the shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's it. That's, that's the picture that I'm, I'm just so struck with, and I have been all week. That it is in our waiting, how long, O oh Lord, and our weeping, that Christ comes near to wipe away the tears. It is not in an absence of weeping, and it is not in the immediate resolution. It is in the joining together of waiting and weeping because of the cross of Jesus. The cross is our only hope. The cross is our power. The cross is our access back to God. The cross is forgiveness of sins from you and me the cross is our reconciliation. The cross is the victory over the evil one and over death itself. Can I ask you to stand and I just want to read some of the language of Revelation over you. We'll treat this like a, a closing prayer. This is the new song. Lion and lamb, you were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our, to our God, and they will reign on the earth, worthy as the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Please go get your children.